Welcome to In That Case. My name is Joel Townsend and this is my podcast about important pieces of public interest litigation which have shaped Australian life. You can find previous episodes of the podcast on the website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com, on Stitcher and on Apple Podcasts. And you can find me on Twitter at at Townsend Joel C. In June 2007, Sue Hackney, who was working for Cobor Community Health, sought to make a booking at a camp on Phillip Island on behalf of a group of young people. This was a group of young people from rural and regional Victoria undertaking the Way Out program of Cobor, which was a program for young people identifying as lesbian, gay or bisexual. In the course of her conversation with the camp manager, Sue Hackney disclosed what the proposed retreat on Phillip Island was for, and the camp manager made it clear that the group would not be welcome at the camp because the camp was owned and operated by the Christian Brethren. And he said that the beliefs of the Christian Brethren meant that, in effect, they couldn't approve of what this group was doing. So the young people proceeded to make a claim that they'd been unlawfully discriminated against. They claimed that they'd been unlawfully discriminated against on the basis of their sexual orientation in either or both of the provision of goods and services or in the provision of accommodation uh, in breach of Victoria's Equal Opportunity Act. At VCAT, when the matter went on to the tribunal for uh, hearing and decision, the camp claimed that it was exempt from the application of those provisions of the Equal Opportunity Act, which prohibited the discrimination, because of exemptions in the Act. And the first of those exemptions set out that conduct on the part of a body established for religious purposes which conforms with the doctrines of that religion or is necessary to avoid injury to the religious sensitivities of people of that religion is exempt from the Act. And the second exemption was that an Act done necessary to comply with the genuine religious beliefs or principles of a person is not subject to the application of the Act. This was litigated before the tribunal. It was a hard-fought piece of litigation. And in the end, in a really interesting case, the tribunal found that the religious exemptions did not apply to Christian youth camps, which was running the facility. There was expert evidence from theologians there was a lot of cut and thrust in the litigation. It was hard fought. It went on not only through the tribunal, but to Victoria's Court of Appeal and on to a special leave application before Australia's High Court. It tested a question which is still a very topical question in Australian public life. How broad should exemptions be from anti-discrimination law for religious people and organisations? And... How should they be applied by courts and tribunals? I began by talking to Sue Hackney about her experience leading to the litigation. Mm-hmm.
I'm a social worker by trade, and I had recently moved to um, no, a, a small town near Kyneton, which is where Kerbal Community Health Service was based. And it was quite a sort of a, a, a happen chance circumstance that I was looking to work locally, and I saw a position advertised at the Community Health Service to coordinate a new project that they'd received funding for from the federal, uh, sorry, from the Victorian government. And I applied for that position and I was very fortunate to, to be offered the role. Um, and then I started to make my way through the funding um, information and the project was one of two pilot projects that the Victorian government was um, supporting. One was based in a metro, metro area, another one was based at Cobalt. Uh, to look at ways of supporting um, gay, lesbian, bisexual and transgender young people in, in um, rural communities. So when I started in the role, um, there was no uh, examples of models, certainly not locally, uh, in ways these types of services operate. So I consulted with my colleagues in the in the city. Um, I also read the you know the small amount of research literature uh, which was available, and it was certainly clear that that um, same-sex attracted or LGBTI young people were at significantly higher risk of suicide, and that was one of the reasons why these two pilot projects were being funded. Um, so in the absence of not really being sure how to how to set up this type of service. I went and consulted, I was very lucky that there were some very good youth services in the Macedon Ranges Shire and I was able to, um, through those workers, connected with some young people who identified as um, gay or lesbian or bi or were interested in this type of project. And it was from there that the journey began really because unlike the model that existed for these types of services in the city, um, the young people in the country areas that I was talking to didn't want to have a support group, nor did they want to have a group that was exclusively for young people who identified as same-sex attracted or gender diverse. Um, what the, country, the local kids wanted um, in a group, and they certainly did want a group, was to have a gay-straight alliance, you know, a, a group where they could bring their friend, friends along, and also rather than have a... Um, uh, a meeting which was largely sort of a get-together in a supportive environment. They um, wanted to be able to do things in their community to raise awareness about what kids were going through in country areas in terms of um, discrimination or not feeling like they belonged. So that sort of sent us on a different path generally to what was going on in the city. Um, and... The young people identified that, you know, they wanted to get to community events and they wanted to prepare things like information cards and other sorts of merchandise uh, just to raise sort of to get some positive and correct information into the community about same-sex attraction um, and also to show other young people that if they were feeling sort of really isolated that there were people who were supportive in their community. So I was quite inspired by that and was sort of happy to go along on the journey. I mean, there were times when, you know, as a, as a worker, I, um, I, I had worries about the risks that some of them were taking. For instance, um, one of them, one young fellow in particular, 
uh, he wanted to do talks in schools. And I said, we discussed about, you know, how that might go down, uh, particularly in, you know, some of the younger year high school classes where, um, you know, some of the criticisms and, and beliefs, uh, homophobic beliefs could prevail just through a lack of exposure to anything correct. Um, anyway, we pursued with that and it ended up being a very successful part of the work that our group did in the community. Um, along the way, we were also connected with an emerging number of groups being set up in other country centres across rural Victoria. And the young people in the local group in the Macedon Ranges were very keen to, to strengthen links with that and also to meet the other young people who were starting to do work in their communities. So then this was the concept for having a forum, a weekend forum that brought together um, young people from the various different groups came, came, came up for discussion. The idea was proposed by you know, the young people and then I got in touch, in touch with the workers in the other group about having a, um, a weekend forum and that was a very popular idea. So I then hunted around for some funding to support that activity and um, was very fortunate to have a successful um, grant application from a philanthropic group called the Reichstein Foundation. Um, I'd, already then, um, I'd already had you know, some very casual conversations with the young people along the way about where they'd like to go if we were able to get some money. Um, and I suppose being the young people that they were, they wanted to go and see the fairy penguins. So I knew that that meant that we'd be looking for somewhere down at, around Phillip Island. Um, and that also was fairly understandable too because some of the country areas at that point were going through um, bad patch of drought. So the kids were, a number of the other kids were saying, oh, I just want to be anywhere near where there's, there's lots of water that we can swim. Um, so that sort of home the geographical area they were looking at. And I'd made an initial inquiry. Um, I just did a quick Google search um, on camps, conference facilities around Phillip Island and um, came up with the Phillip Island Adventure Resort. I had squeezed through their website and I thought, oh, this looks like it's sort of got the things that the young people might um, like and, and what we needed in terms of mix of you know, meeting rooms and accommodation and so on. Uh, and I'd made an initial inquiry and just checked, you know, to check the prices um, and that all looked fine. Um, and then once we were able to lock down some dates that suited the different groups, I went back to make the booking. Um, and it's funny, you know, even that, God, that was that uh, 2007, so that's quite some time ago now, 12 years. Um, there's elements of that day and that conversation which is still quite, quite fresh in my mind although I wouldn't want to trust it too much at this point now um, in terms of my memory. But uh, I made the, the phone conversation and the first part of it was looking fine and then the fellow that I was speaking to asked a little bit more about our group and I explained that it was a, you know, a service to support young people who identified as um, same-sex attracted or gender diverse and you know, the aim of our project was to raise awareness about the nature and effects of discrimination. And he said, well, um, I, I'm not sure about that. And I said, oh, you know, we're just going to have a forum to discuss, um, you know, what's happening for young people across rural Victoria. 
and um, you know what we could do to um, reduce isolation and, and address the effects of discrimination. Um, and that's when I detected a stronger sort of pushback about um, from the manager of the resort saying that they'd really have difficulty having a group such as ours. Um, and again, Joel, some of the parts of the conversation are getting a bit a bit faint now. But I remember trying to sort of because he then he said that they are a Christian organisation, and I said, oh look, I didn't want to be disrespectful of their beliefs, um, but that I would be honest with him and that our group did believe that same-sex attraction was a normal part of the human range of sexualities. Um, and then he became quite firm that, no, they wouldn't be able to take a group such as ours, and then he suggested uh, another camp facility uh, called Kiwanda Park or something, I think it was, um, in the area. Um, and by that stage, I was sort of really starting to feel quite angry and frustrated that I was having this conversation and um, I said, look, you know, I needed to make sure that we were booking somewhere that would be safe and welcoming for the young people and that, that, I, that I'd just leave the conversation there and, um, and, you know, basically concluded it. This was an intense piece of litigation and it took a great deal of work just to get the matter on before the tribunal. The young people in question had to think long and hard before deciding to bring the litigation. And I spoke both to Sue Hackney and to Jim McKenna, who was one of the barristers on the team, about the preparation for the litigation and its conduct. There was a series of steps and certainly, uh, I can't remember the precise order, but um, certainly I had a conversation with the young people in our local group in the Macedon Rangers. And um, the, sadly, you know, this wasn't the first time that they'd experienced discrimination. And, you know, some of them, even by the age of 15 or 16, were, were veterans at having to deal with this type of attitude and, and response. Um, and, you know, they were understandably angry, um, hurt about the thought that this camp may not proceed because, you know, even a conference facility didn't want to have a group such as this. But um, we'd also, because of the, the original orientation of the group, um, uh, learnt about the legal protections that were available because that was always a part. And I suppose, that, you know, that was something I considered was important for the young people people to know from a, from an early part when they joined the group that they had, you know, a general knowledge that um, that our society had already made a, I suppose, a stance that same-sex attraction um, and gender diversity was, was an attribute that would be protected under our anti-discrimination legislation. So they had a working knowledge of that already. And I said, well, look, you know, we do have this option if you want to. And they said, well, let's find out some more about that. At the same time, I was also aware that um, I needed to consult with, you know, the, the, the executives and senior leaders in our organisation. So I went and had a chat to the CEO and explained what had happened. He was um, 
very supportive and um, not at all happy to hear that that sort of thing was still going on in this day and age. Um, and he asked that I do a briefing for the board of the organisation, which I did. Um, and um, they in turn, and this is according to Alan, the CEO, he said it didn't take them long to make a decision. They said, well, you know, if the, the young people felt that they've been discriminated against, you know, we have, we have a moral obligation to protect them and to support them, use their rights under the law. So I had a great sigh of relief of that because, you know, you can wonder through, you can work in different organisations um, that that say they, you know, are committed to various social justice principles, but it's another matter for an organisation to stand up and act on behalf of, um, you know, its service users in these types of instances. It, it was obviously pretty hard-fought litigation and there was a real contest about things like your conversation with the staff at the camp when you were seeking to make the booking. What do you recall of that process? It sounds as it reads as though it, it was quite a um, hard process for all of you. It was a, a very demanding process and um, you know, looking back now, I think perhaps some of that was, you know, a little bit of going into the unknown. Um, I was aware, of, because of my own working background, of, you know, the steps that are involved in firstly trying to resolve the matter at the, you know, the level of the Commission and informally. Um, but I had no preconception of how much time would need to be taken, um, particularly once we got to the tribunal level, uh, in just even getting pre prepared for the hearings that needed to happen. Um, and I think that was, from memory, like years of... And it just seemed that we just needed to go to... An, that there was another directions hearing. So I was, you know, sort of quite on the periphery. I mean, the, the legal team were absolutely fantastic and couldn't have asked for, for a better team to work with us. But... You know, this was a new system for me and it was certainly a new system for the young people and other workers that were named in the complaint. And it, 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 the, reflecting back now, the, the process is a really sort of um, unusual space to be in because, like, it's about you and it's about something that's very personal to you, but you're quite alienated from it all and the way it folds out. Um, except when we get down to, of course, being cross-examined, which was, you know, a very tough process to go to, even though, I mean, our, our legal team had, um, uh, you know, been supportive in preparing us for that, but it's another thing to sort of find yourself in a very public forum being cross-examined um, and learning along the way, I suppose, of the little, uh, what's Gains isn't the right word, but, but perhaps strategies that, uh, you know, the um, the respondents to the complaint were using. Um, I'm sure they were intended to um, obviously support their case, but I was surprised at suppose, some of the... Um, I don't know, from my perspective, I thought, oh, that's not fair, or that's a bit dirty sort of tactic... And that actually started right from the beginning because when we were in the when the matter was being dealt with by the um, uh, the Equal Opportunity Commission, 
there was an agreement between the parties that we wouldn't bring lawyers, but I got a call, you know, say at four o'clock of the afternoon before the day when our conciliation meeting was scheduled, saying from the commission saying that they would be bringing a barrister. And I thought, wow, that's perfectly timed, isn't it, to make it very difficult for us. How is it that you came to be involved in the COBOR case? Um, I was a very junior barrister at the time. I was, I'd just finished reading and I'd moved on to, I was subleasing a room um, on the floor that Debbie Mortimer was on. And Emerus Nexapol was at the time a solicitor at Mallison's and he had, he contacted Debbie Mortimer um, with a proposal for her to provide pro bono assistance and she approached me. Um, and then the team grew from there and Emrys came. Once Emrys um, left Melton to Cape Bar, he joined and then Elizabeth Bennett joined and then uh, or Kathleen Foley first and then Elizabeth. So that was sort of how the team developed. It was um, June 2007 that there was the call from Sue Hackney to the, yeah. the camp and then um, it was July 2010 that there was a hearing at VCAT. Was there... Was there a lot of procedural wrangling even at the VCAT stage? There was a bit. Um, there were some complexities with the filing of evidence. Um, one of the things that you don't see in the judgment is that um, CYC actually filed expert um, paediatric evidence uh, and then um, COBOR filed reply evidence to that from a, from a very well-regarded paediatrician. Um, Ultimately, that was all ruled inadmissible, but I think there were some delays with that. It, it just it took a while to move through the processes in VCAT as well. Um, like you sort of, I think you've looked at the data the same, preparing to speak to you. Seven and a half years from the act of discrimination till special leave being refused. It was a very long journey, for, particularly for the young people involved, I think. This was a case not just about statutory interpretation. It was also about the receipt of evidence. The evidence of Sue Hackney, of her phone call with Christian Youth Camps in June 2007 was important, but also important was the evidence of two theologians. This evidence was important because Christian Youth Camps sought to argue that they were entitled to rely on an exemption in the Equal Opportunity Act. That was an exemption which said that an act done by a body established for religious purposes, which conformed with the doctrines of that religion, could be exempt from the application of the act. And so the question was, what constituted the doctrine of the Christian religion that Christian youth camps sought to rely on? Christian youth camps called an expert who argued that doctrine could encompass any of a wide range of teachings or beliefs held by adherence to a religion and that in this case it could include a disapproval of homosexuality. Dr Rufus Black for Cobor Community Health gave evidence that doctrines needed to be understood here as a much narrower concept as the key architecture of the faith and that this did not include a 
prohibition of or disapproval of homosexuality. I discussed with Jim McKenna a little about the receipt of this evidence by the tribunal. Everything basically was an issue, which is why it ran over four weeks in VCAT. Um, Sue Hackney is a pretty remarkable woman. Um, she, uh, I, I think it was a very difficult decision for her as to whether to take this action to encourage the kids to come forward, uh, you know, to, to take on the act of discrimination. Um, but she, and, and um, Judge Hample makes comments about her and about her evidence and her credibility. Um, she's a pretty remarkable woman and she... Uh, there probably wasn't that much in terms of preparing her for her evidence because it was it was quite natural for her. She knew what she'd said. She'd taken notes of it at the time. Um, so to the extent that there was a factual dispute, I think she was reasonably comfortable with her recollection of the events and was able to give evidence and pretty clear and cogent evidence about what had happened. On the paediatric evidence, that's really interesting. Was that filed um, by the respondents seeking to argue that 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 this initiative by COBOL was in fact um, deleterious to the health of the kids? That was an element of it. Um, ultimately, we, well, um, COBOL was successful in, in um, convincing the tribunal that none of it was relevant, so that's why none of it made its way into the judgment. But you'll see from um, the decision of the tribunal that one of the arguments that um, CYC ran quite firmly is that there was this distinction between um, the the fact that the young people were same-sex attracted or had a personal association with same-sex attraction um, and th the message. And there was... So, so some of the evidence was directed towards that and, and some of it was directed towards the standing because there were complex arguments about um, the capacity for COBOR to bring the proceeding, to bring the representative proceeding. Um, and so the, the evidence, a long time ago now, but the evidence I think was, some of the paediatric evidence was directed towards that issue. You called Rufus Black uh, an esteemed theologian. Where did that idea come from? I don't know. Um, but So I knew of Rufus Black before, but I'm not going to claim the credit for it. Um, he married friends of mine Um but I, I don't know where the, the idea came from, but he was a remarkable witness. He's a remarkable man. Um, again, the, um, Judge Hample made some comments about the evidence that he gave, but his involvement was, um, was extremely helpful in determining that issue or, or assisting the, the tribunal to determine the issue about you know, what, what were the doctrines of the religion um, and it, it was a, the, the expert evidence that was given by the two um, reverends was a, a fascinating aspect of the case. How did you go about preparing for that? I mean, it's an intimidating thing, I think, to try to determine the legal, in a, in a legal tribunal, the content of religious doctrine. Yeah, and, it, and it's a difficult step for uh, any tribunal to take, I think. Um, in terms of how it was prepared, it was done very carefully in terms of... Um, there was a conference 
um, with Dr Black, um, with counsel, and um, he was instructed by the instructing solicitors very clear parameters of the questions um, that he was to address and the information that he was provided. Um, and he, he um, addressed those questions. He brought a very um, keen and well-trained and highly informed mind to those issues and, and gave very clear evidence to the tribunal on them. Yeah, so the, um, my my view is that the choice of doctrines are quite specific. Um, it's up to lawyers to decide what the word meaning of the word is, but at least in a religious context, um, uh, doctrine is um, has a pretty kind of has a technical uh, you know has a technical use, um, and certainly in the Christian tradition, um, arguing about what constituted the doctrines of the church. Um, is a you know a well described feature of um, of the history of Christian thought, um, and uh, therefore I was trying just to locate it in that uh, in that context. And it seemed to me that was a from a legislative perspective a, a good thing to do because those doctrines are kind of uh, they are carefully crafted uh, documents, not huge in number, that create definitions for what the um, you know, Fundamental beliefs um, are of uh, um, a particular kind of form of, of Christian belief. So that there are community determines um, uh, recognised um, framework by which you could establish whether somebody was um, a member of that particular denomination seems to make them, if you're going to have to use them for broader legal purposes, a valuable. Um, uh, valuable indeed, possibly the only sensible point of reference that you could have. There can be doctrine about how you approach scripture. That's a doctrine. How, how do you think about approaching it? Um, but that doesn't make the scripture, everything that's in the scripture, therefore doctrine itself. The doctrine is about what's in scripture. Um, scripture may inform what a doctrine is, like it informs what the, um, the doctrine of the incarnation is. Um, it's material that feeds into um, the formulation of doctrine. Um, so my approach to describing how doctrine works wouldn't have accommodated that view that you could sort of piggyback everything else, included all in doctrine, because you could find a doctrine that scooped the whole Bible up. Um, uh, so that wouldn't, certainly that view wouldn't have been consistent, isn't consistent with the uh, way I described it. In any of these things, you can't but bring your own um, uh, your own um, belief. You, you know, you have a perspective um, uh, actually. You know, in these things, and you'd be um, not not honest if you were um, if you are hiding those. Um, so you know that I came from a community where um, uh, you know I looked after a student community where. Um, this was, uh, you know, I'd seen firsthand this sort of significance of being um, of these kind of issues. And um, so I had a good, you know, feeling about why these things mattered. But in the end of the day, I wasn't offering a, I was offering a view about doctrine and how it related to this, um, not about my own personal views. But, you know, I'm on record. I've, you know, I've, I have been someone who's been comfortable publicly as a religious person. Um, um, you know, seeing um, these, uh, not thinking these kind of behaviours or beliefs were incompatible, um, 
with uh, contemporary Christian belief. That's, um, you know, that that is what I think. And I've, I've you know, never hid from him, never resolved from that. The case ran for most of July 2010, and in October of that year, Cobor and the young people got an answer from the tribunal. They had been discriminated against by Christian youth camps, and Christian youth camps were not entitled to rely on the exemptions they'd claimed. In substance, the tribunal agreed with Dr Black's conception of doctrines of a religion for the purposes of the Equal Opportunity Act. Debbie Mortimer, now Justice Mortimer, did all of the cross-examination, notwithstanding the fact that she had three juniors. And um, she did a, she is a remarkable, was a remarkable barrister, now an exceptional judge. Uh, the evidence, um, the evidence came out very well. It was, the fair bit of work had been gone into to preparing and make it clear. And I think that the, the view at the end of the case was that the evidence was, the, the, the evidence had come out as well as we could have expected and had hoped. Um, but there was there are, were a huge number of legal issues, um, and so I don't think anybody had any degree of certainty about how it was going to fall. There was a fair bit of evidence um, before VCAT about the activities um, of CYC in, in running the Phillip Island Adventure Resort, and from memory, it, it, it did conduct church camps from time to time, um, but it was, and I think still is, predominantly a, a commercial operation available for groups to hire and I think that was a significant factual issue in the in VCAT and um, it was a, it was significant for some of the members of the Court of Appeal as well I think in determining whether um, CYC was a religious body um, or, or, or that is I think a body established for religious purposes. As a worker I felt myself getting pulled in in a number of different directions just going through the tribunal phase, you know, obviously I had a, a, a primary concern to make sure that um, that the young people were felt were feeling supported and knew what was going on and weren't, um, and also knew at any time that it was totally their call and there would be no loss of face whatsoever if they decided that this process wasn't for them. Um, and similarly too with the other workers, that so we're all on a bit of a journey together sort of going through this. And then it was like um, when it, it seemed after, because the hearing itself seemed to go on for quite some time, and actually I think it did go on for about 10, 12 days. Um, and then suddenly it seemed very quickly it was all over and done with. And I thought, oh, okay. Um, from a social worker's perspective, I, you know, I, I sort of sort of need to gather every round, everyone around and say, can we, we'll just do some sort of closing off of the process. But there was none of that. It was sort of like, okay, we're done now, everybody go. And, um, and then um, there was a great uncertainty about how long it might be until the decision was handed out. And it was only by chance that um, the decision was emailed out late one Friday afternoon to one of the, the barristers. Um, like it didn't even go to our sort of um, our senior council. And so we were sort of only found out very, very late one Friday afternoon uh, what the decision was. And of course, you know, massive excitement and, you know, huge sighs of relief that 
that um, the decision had been made in our favour. I mean, it took me some um, days to sort of read over the decision in full and um, many of the technical aspects I didn't didn't quite follow. But there were aspects of the judgment which I thought fantastic um, where um, observations had been made by the court that, you know, this was an incredibly personal part of a person's identity um, and one which, um, contrary to what the respondents were saying and kept referring to as a lifestyle choice, wasn't in fact, you know, an intrinsic aspect um, of, of a person's makeup. So I thought that was really significant because that was something which I think needed to be, needed to be heard and understood. Cobor and the young people had prevailed uh, at VCAT at first instance, but their journey wasn't over. They would find themselves in appeal proceedings in Victoria's Court of Appeal and their journey would continue beyond even that point. Next time I'll take you through the appeal proceedings and some of the reflections of Sue Hackney, Rufus Black and Jim McKenna on religious exemptions from anti-discrimination laws. Once again, previous episodes are available on the website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and you can find me on Twitter at, at Townsend Joel C. I'll look forward to you joining me for the next episode of In That Case. Mm-hmm.